So essentially, I risked money in my retirement, and I also risked my house. So it is a big deal if the company fails. Yes. Is it one that I don't think I could bail myself out of? No. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Very excited for this week's podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, someone who we've talked about anonymously on the show, one of our most listened to podcasts about selling our business, which was basically a manufacturing and import company selling, amongst other things, portable bars and valet equipment. And today, that person who bought the business has very gamely agreed to come on the show. Tino Sage, and I am the owner of AE International, and I purchased the assets of Tutri International, which is the company that you owned a little over a year ago. You started to tell me before we started recording that you listened to the podcast in which we talked about you. Yeah, I listened to the Sold podcast, I think was the title of it. I found out that you guys called me CEO Sally, which was really funny to me, but... (laughs) I guess it makes sense once you put the description in there of why you're calling me CEO Sally. CEO Sally is somebody who they're not evaluating your business like Dimitri was. Like basically, I want to get an asset at half of its value and then capitalize on that difference, you know? CEO Sally is really looking for a retirement play, like a long-term wealth play. Essentially, they want to buy themselves a really great job, one that has long-term asset value. There's a couple of great things about CEO Sally. They often have the right experience to run a business. So they've been either at executive level or in other small businesses and stuff like that. They've got the money because they've been saving their whole life. And often they use loan structures in order to get into the business, which means it's a little bit of a leverage deal, which means that they're not price sensitive. I think you guys did peg it. I mean, I've been working 60, 70 hours a week for a long time. It was time to totally pull back the number of hours I was working and work for myself and not necessarily retirement, but maybe semi-retirement is what I kind of was looking for with the virtues of the company. What else is going on in your life? You had a successful career working in Los Angeles for these major production companies. What exactly led you to think, hey, this is a time in my life where I think I should be considering purchasing something like this? I worked for Universal Studios for 15 years. I went through four corporate owners in that 15 years and saw many, many different ways that large companies manage. It was a fantastic place to work. I really enjoyed being there. By the end of my career there, I had been mainly in financial positions and I was in a couple of CFO positions. And then I ended up being in charge of the facilities there. And it was great, but exhausting. Towards the end, I was working just incredible hours. My 
health was essentially suffering. I had gained 20 pounds and I had a bad back and I've always been a very healthy person. And so that was really strange for me. When we had our last ownership change, it was just enough for me at that point. I was like, all right, it's time for me to step back, look at my life and figure out what do I really want? At one point, one of my coworkers who was a a CFO of one of the other divisions and I were having a conversation and he said to me something that shocked me. He said, you know, I'm afraid that we are in danger of becoming institutionalized, not as in institutionalized crazy, but only able to work in big institutions. Like we won't know how to dial a phone unless somebody dials it for us. You know, things like that. You know, it's just, at some point, do you forget how to actually do the work and do you only know how to have meetings? The more and more I thought about it, I was just like, I don't think I can work for someone else again. So it was time for me to just step back, take a little bit more control of my life and see what I could do for myself and try to do it in a smaller place with a smaller number of people. You know, it was also just a new challenge for me to do something like that. So tell me a little bit about the confidence that it took to start looking for a business. Did you have a history of entrepreneurship or was there someone in your life that was kind of pushing you towards this opportunity? You know, I had tried to start a couple of businesses at some point, and what I realized was that I wasn't very good at starting them. Frankly, when you're an executive at a large company, you tell people to do things and they do it. So that's really a nice thing about it, being an executive at a company, but it also means that when you don't have enough money to pay somebody a huge amount of money to do something, you are not first on their list. So when you're starting a company, you're not the first on anybody's list. So that was too frustrating for me. I had worked for smaller companies. I had tried starting something myself, starting it in work. So I decided here's the happy medium is I should buy something that already exists, already has staff in place that knows what they're doing, and then just kind of needs general leadership. And that's when I found you guys. You know, I'd gone in deep on a couple of other companies and, you know, met a few times with the owners and gone through lots of different financials. So it was really a slow evolution of figuring out what it was I needed, the size of the company I needed, what type of company I would be comfortable buying. I didn't want to go into something that was so far beyond my expertise that I couldn't figure it out and wouldn't feel comfortable figuring it out. So we are a manufacturing and product design company, basically an importer. And so I take it that you had some skills that you felt might be transferable Yeah. It's strangely, I mean, I first started looking at IT companies because I was in charge of the finance for IT at Universal for years and work very closely with a lot of guys and still have very good friends with a lot of folks that are in the IT industry. But then when I saw your company, one of the things that stuck out to me was that I'm very familiar with the customer base, especially when it comes to the bar equipment. I was in charge of the food and beverage for a while at Universal as part of the facilities department, essentially, as a food and beverage division there. Even before I was in charge of facilities, I was in charge of their finances for a while also. There was also a department at Universal that was developing products that was in our division that was developing products and had been selling them. It wasn't like I was really, really involved, but I was familiar with it. There was product development going on at the same time. So that made me feel more comfortable. And I don't want to jump too far ahead, but the things that you thought were important to you going into the business, how important have they turned out to be in terms of like, you know, skill set, for example? I don't know if it's less important because it's less important or because I just don't know as much. And so I consider it less important. (laughs) (laughs) We have those biases in our brain. 
I mean, I think coming in, because everybody was already in place, it's like I haven't had to delve into those things that I didn't think I was going to delve into. I'm not a salesperson. I never thought I was going to be a salesperson. So I don't touch sales. However, the marketing I've done a little bit more, but before I actually went to business school, my first degree was in marketing. And so I'm very comfortable with that. There actually hasn't been, but maybe it's because I just knew I was going to have to figure everything out. Going back to the process of the sale, you and I were kind of shielded from each other initially. There was this broker in between us. It was curious to me to learn kind of what you were hearing from him and then also what I was hearing. So what were some of the things that he was telling you about this business, at least initially? He was really very upfront. You already had a pretty high growth rate even before the spring. And so when your growth rate really got high right before we came to a kind of conclusion with the major deal points and figuring them out, he told me what you guys had done with this company, that you had started another one and that one was taking off. And so you guys had decided to sell. He told me that you guys were pretty gun-shy because of the bad experiences you had had with two other buyers beforehand. I think he just wanted to let me know, don't mess around, because if you mess around, they're so frustrated, they're just going to walk away. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty accurate. (laughs) Especially, I guess, with the last person that had just, you know, kind of put a hold on it and then just didn't do anything but sit around for you know, a month or something after you had had like six or seven offers. Somebody made like a cash offer, right? And then just didn't do anything after locking you up. Yeah, it was a very low cash offer. Yeah. You know, it was a confusing time for us because on one side, we were getting some pressure to like maybe move forward because, hey, you know, we don't know what the market's going to bring. We don't know what kind of buyers are going to come. You kind of got this offer in the hand here. So you need to kind of take it seriously. But on the other hand, like you said, we were having a lot of growth in the company and not doing a whole bunch of work on a weekly basis. And for us, it was just better to keep it and wait for the right opportunity to come along, which of course was you. In listening to your podcast on the sale, I think I can clear up a few things that the reason that people were kind of acting the way they were about a couple of issues. And I think I've mentioned this to you before, but what I said I liked about you and the company especially was that once I actually got your tax returns and compared them with your financials and everything else, everything actually did match. It's interesting how often that stuff does not match and sometimes wildly does not match. When it comes to the initial sell that brokers are generally making with a business, you find out it's not all the truth so often. I would say 50%. And I asked for and got the proposals from at least 50 businesses when I was looking because I looked for, you know, eight months or so. I would say 50% of them, there was something not right about what had been pitched. So they would say, oh, we've got sales of $2 million. Well, they had sales of $2 million three years ago, and now they have sales of one. Or they'll say the owner works 10 or 15 hours a week. And then you actually talk to the owner and the owner's like, well, that's how often I'm in the office. But I'm really, you know, like this one guy, I was getting close to a deal with the guy and it was a service business. And I came to his office, we sat down and we were going through some of the financials he was giving me. And this is evening. So all of his employees would be gone because employees didn't know he was selling the business. And the phone kept ringing and he kept answering it. And then finally he says, oh, yeah, I cover the phones at night. And I'm like, well, for how long at night? He goes, until six in the morning. (laughs) And it was like nine o'clock at night. And somebody was calling. It's not that they were calling every five minutes, but somebody was calling every hour. And he says, oh, usually, you know, it stops around 11. And they said, and I'm like, where do you get you work 10 hours a week out of that? (laughs) 
it's things like that. There was also the ad backs. I mean, on the podcast, you mentioned ad backs. People will say the strangest things should not have been included in expenses. So like one business I was looking at, they had a salesperson and they had taken the salesperson's salary out of the ad backs. And I said, well, why'd you do that? And they said, well, they weren't very good. So they might as well not even been there. So they pretend that the expense never even happened. So that's why people are very, very critical and really press a lot when it comes to those types of things when you're selling your business or, you know, it's the things you should question when you're buying one because there's just so much just straight dishonesty in some cases, in some cases, just really pushing the truth a lot. (laughs) So tell me about the emotion that you felt when you came across our business. You know, you met me. I don't know how you felt about that, but then you get to see these financials and they start to line up. Do you start to get excited or do you start to think, well, I've been through this before. There's got to be something. And did you actually find something that was incongruent with what we said? If I did, it wasn't big enough for me to actually remember. I liked it because you guys actually had put together an honest package. You and your broker had put together something that was honest. And I definitely got excited when I was like reading to it. I was like, oh, it doesn't have this problem. It doesn't have this problem. It doesn't have this problem. It also made me nervous at the same time, not because I thought, oh, I'm going to find something horrible and just that was being hidden from me. It was more just like, oh, okay, so I really got to do this. And I'm about to incur a whole lot of debt in order to do it. Tell me about that. I mean, you had to feel confident enough that the business was going to continue to grow and be on this trajectory because you were taking on debt to kind of cover this opportunity. I mean, what did you have to do in your life? Did you feel like this is going to be a major disaster if this goes wrong? Yeah. I mean, I don't mind saying how I bought it because it's probably useful information for people. I had to do two different things that was risking things that I had essentially accomplished in my life. I had to take the loan that I got is an SBA-backed loan. However, the SBA requires that if you have a certain amount of collateral in your home, that your home also becomes collateral for an SBA-backed loan. A quick note about SBA loans, because this is an American institution, I'm sure other countries have their version of this, but the SBA loan in America was established by President Eisenhower through the signing of the Small Business Act in 1953. The number one function of these loan programs is to make loans with longer repayment periods available to small businesses, generally speaking, longer than what traditional bank terms would be. The SBA then guarantees their part of the repayment. And essentially, this guarantee reduces the risk for lenders, allowing them to make loans to small businesses that they wouldn't have normally lent to. And again, this is a government-sponsored program. A lot of people that buy businesses in the United States seek this kind of assistance for their loan. So that is the case with me, is that I do have collateral, more than 20% collateral in my house. So the SBA actually has a lien on the house, or the bank has a lien on the house for the loan. So essentially, I'm risking my house. The other thing is you can use your retirement funds in order to purchase a business. There is a whole series of hoops that you have to jump through in order to to get that done, but you can. The limitations are that you have to be a C-Corp. For one, you have to form a C-Corp, which has tax implications, which are not favorable. The other is that you essentially have to treat yourself like any other employee of the company. And the reason that is, is because they don't want people just to set up a company that actually doesn't do anything and then, in essence, take a whole bunch of money out of their 401k and just live off of it. They want to make sure that you are actually a business and you are actually 
doing things and their employees is so that it doesn't look like you're just removing money from your 401k. So the company is actually partially owned by my 401k and partially owned by me. So essentially, I risked money in my retirement and I also risked my house. So it is a big deal if the company fails. Yes. Is it one that I don't think I could bail myself out of? No. I don't think I'd have trouble finding another job if I wanted to go out and find another job. And I don't think, and if you leave a corporate job and you work at your own company and have your own company for a while, people don't really look at that as an unfavorable thing. They don't look at it like you were unemployed. They look at it like, hey, you know, you took a chance and maybe it didn't work out. One of the things I noticed in that process, because, you know, we were a part of that trying to think creatively, at least a little bit together on how to get this deal done was how far you were willing to go, not necessarily in terms of risk, but the work that you were willing to put in to try and figure out how to get the deal done. For me, showed me a lot of confidence that you were A, confident about the business, but then also B, confident about, you know, pushing this thing forward. And I don't believe most of the people that we saw that were trying to buy this business were willing to put in that much work. Yeah, I mean, it was tough because at the beginning, I did have a partner when I first started looking at the company, I had a partner that was going to do it with me, which was going to make it a little bit easier. I think in the end, it is, it's better because, you know, when I can make a decision, I don't have to talk about it with someone else, I guess. <laughs> I just can do it and move forward and don't need to worry about it and don't need to worry about anybody else. But it did financially make it more difficult to do. I mean, we had to change our deal terms because of it. And you were willing to sit down and change the deal terms. It went both ways. Your broker at one point was just like, I think he was excited that we both worked on it as much as we did, obviously. (laughs) We were both inspired by each other in in a lot of ways, right? It's like we had the same goal and we knew that there was going to be some hurdles that maybe the broker or even the lawyers couldn't help us with. Yeah. But we were both inspired enough to get the deal done. You bring up the lawyers was a fun bit too. (laughs) Was it fair, you think what I said, at least from your perspective and what you saw? Because just to bring people back to that episode, I highly recommend anybody that likes this episode, go listen to that episode. But we had a lot of trouble with our lawyer on our side. And just because I think the main thing was this wasn't a guy that we had worked with before. And so he wasn't super invested in our business or necessarily the outcome of the sale. My recommendation to anybody that's looking to sell their business is like start talking to a lawyer before you get involved in a deal like this. Have them understand your business, what you think your biggest downsides are. This guy, we came in at the 11th hour because our number one and number two pick fell through. And so we were kind of stuck with this guy. And I got the feeling you kind of understood that. And I think you and your lawyer were much better equipped to kind of deal with this situation. But what were the feelings that you were getting from me about my lawyer at the time? You always have to watch out with an attorney because, you know, you're hiring them to protect your interests and you got to tell them when you don't want them to protect quite that much. You know, so it's like, all right, I understand that it's in my favor to have this phrase in there, but I could really give a crap if this phrase is in there because that's not something that's ever, 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 ever going to happen. Or this is something that is such a technicality and would cost me $5 in the end to fix. And so I don't care. Let's move on. And they're there to guide you and help you, but they don't have to dictate to you what you have to do. I think with us, it was like, okay, so who's taking the lead on making this document? Who's writing this? Whoever writes the document first generally pays more. At one point, my attorney said, 
I have done this document so many times, it's going to take me one hour to put together this document. And I was like, okay, I can live with it's going to take you an hour to put together that document. And so I'll let you do that document, then I'll give it to Ian, and then his guy can review it. Whereas I don't know how many hours it would have taken your guys to put together the same document. And I got the feeling that you kind of sensed that. We still hadn't inked a deal yet. So we were still negotiating things, right? Like who writes documents, what goes in the documents. And so you want to be 100% honest with each other. But in some ways, like you don't want to give away necessarily the power dynamics of what's going on, right? So from my perspective back then, I was like, oh, I got this guy. He's kind of a foot dragger here. <laughs> we want to get the deal done. But like, I could tell that you had much more experience kind of writing these documents and seeing them through just because you had more experience with lawyers than we did. And so at some point, could you sense that? And was that part of your reason for, I think, pushing that side of the deal a little bit harder than I did? Yeah, I did. I mean, and also my attorney did when he, I can't remember he saw something that your attorneys were just like, huh, that's really weird that he would do that. And I was like, is it? And he was just like, yeah, it doesn't really make sense. But you know, we'll go with it and we'll do this. But then do you remember, even after we got the main documents done, we had like four other things that we had to other documents that we had to put together and get done. Your attorney went on vacation. And then when he got back, my attorney went on vacation. And then when he got back, like your attorney wasn't available anymore. And so you like went to even another backup attorney. It was like this crazy scheduling thing that we came into, like at the last minute, like maybe there was six weeks left before we were supposed to close, which seems like a lot of time, but isn't when there are attorneys involved. It was just amazing. I was like, wow, this is something I thought would take two weeks and it's been eight weeks and we're still doing this. (laughs) It's quite conceivable that in, I think we even said it on that show is that lawyers could potentially kill a deal like this. Definitely. There was a couple turns, I feel like in the process where if you weren't motivated enough and I wasn't motivated enough, I mean, I was here things from the lawyer like oh you shouldn't enter this agreement because of this reason and at that point you kind of have to judge what your own downside is right because the lawyer is just getting whatever the lawyer gets you know we're trying to forge our futures together in a way yeah, especially when a lawyer is somebody that you don't have a relationship with already, and you're just hiring to do this one deal for you, they may just be trying to stretch out their fees, and you don't know, you know, unless they have the foresight to know, this is somebody that's going to do this a lot. And so they could have me on retainer for, you know, 15 years, because they could do so many deals. So we figured out a way to get the deal done. I remember where I was. Do you remember where you were when you kind of inked the deal and sent all the papers off? I was driving around Palm Springs because my attorney was actually in Palm Springs. So I was out there driving between Title House and them and to the escrow company for the actual day that we were signing all the paperwork. I was in Greece and I was laying on the hotel bed, corresponding with you and lawyers and the title house and everything to get everything done. And then the very next day after everything was settled and it was over with, I got like deathly ill. It was like all the stress from everything that had been going on for the last couple of months just like hit me. And it was one of those like just very bad next couple of days. So it was unfortunate for me because I couldn't even celebrate. Did you get to celebrate at all? Yeah, I mean, I celebrated that night once I got back to LA. (laughs) Then I drove to, you know, San Diego the next day so that I could get ready for the first day of the new company. I was so happy and it was done. I remember uh, that I forgot about that, that we had like that last day we were actually signing paperwork and they're like, oh yeah, here's this additional document. And I'm like, okay, here's the problem. 
Ian is in Greece. He is not just someplace where, like, there were no scanner or printer or something, but to actually get a hard ink signature on something was difficult. Yeah, pro tip, if you're going to do a deal like this, you have to have a fax machine, which none of us have anymore. So (laughs) invest in a fax machine. So you're excited and you're getting ready to drive down to the offices the next day. Had you met any of the staff? What were your thoughts? I had because what were we about three weeks away from the end of the deal? And I came to San Diego and you went ahead and introduced me to people. And I, we kind of had like little meetings with each of the main employees that day. So this was a big risk for us. And this was something that we talked about because we had had people back out of the deals at various different stages, but we had never gone this far. And so that's why I felt confident in letting the staff know that, hey, this is Tino. She's presumably going to be taking over the company. But there was still risk, right? Because you and I hadn't actually signed anything at that point. We were just very deep into the negotiations. And so from a business owner standpoint, which was me at the time, I thought, well, if Tino sees something, if she comes down to the office, if she doesn't like these people, whatever, she backs out of the deal. And then I'm left with these people that trust me, knowing that I may have betrayed their trust over the last couple of months in trying to sell this business, what felt like behind their back. And so for me, it felt like a big risk to have you come down to the office. And that's why we waited so long. When you came and you met these people, what did you think? Oh, well, I thought they were great. I mean, obviously, I still have them. (laughs) And it was important for me to meet them because I didn't want to jump into a situation, especially when it was, you know, a business that I was just getting to know. I certainly didn't know anything about the products themselves, other than what I could see on the internet. To meet the people that were actually responsible for sourcing the manufacturers and the sales and customer service was important because if I felt like these people are really flighty and maybe Ian has been like guiding them a lot more and spending a lot more time with them than he has let on, then that was going to be a problem for me. But I don't know if at that point, I don't think it would be big enough for me to back out. I think it was just going to be big enough for me to have to figure out really quickly what I was going to do. No, they're all really smart. You're very good at hiring or very lucky. Lucky. Lucky is what you were looking for there. I I saw you go to Lucky first and then you said good. No, it was Lucky. (laughs) They're amazing. And it's good to hear that they're all still there. And so tell me a little bit about like what the first week was like, because you live in Los Angeles, right? Yeah. And the office is in San Diego. And I'd been operating that office remotely for a while. What was your feeling that first week? Did you kind of just sit back and watch everything happen and think like, I better operate this from day one, how I'm going to operate it on day 300? Or did you try and dive right in? Oh, no, it's it was time to listen and learn. The first many weeks was just time to like sit there. So the purchase was July 20th. So I spent the rest of July and August there almost every day. I have lots of friends that take huge vacations. So I had a friend that like left that lives in North County that left and was gone for a month. And so I stayed at their house, which was great because then I could just be there and not have to worry about trying to... Because when you're just on the phone, you don't know everything that's going on. You don't see everything that's going on. You know what people tell you. And so it was important for me to spend a whole lot of time there in the beginning. So we also moved offices. So that was the other thing is we moved to an office that was bigger because I knew I was going to be spending more time in the office than you had been. We needed space for me. We also were adding an employee. And to get away from the rat poop. And to get away from the rat poop. Yes. (laughs) Sorry about that. (laughs) Wonderful neighborhood. The building itself was kind of falling apart. A lot of the first couple of weeks was just getting ready for that move and packing things up. 
we had to buy a, a whole bunch of furniture and, and get everything ready in a new space. So that actually took up a lot of time. But it was really just taking time with each employee, just listening to what they do, and just kind of combing through all the information that was available on the products and diving more into QuickBooks and the financials to see where things were, getting to know who the suppliers were, that kind of thing. There's no reason to sit down and tell people what to do on your first day other than to say to them, tell me, you know, talk to me, tell me whatever you want to tell me. I think it took me about good seven, eight months to start to feel like, okay, I really know a lot now of what's going on. And now I can give direction more. What I gave direction in the very beginning about was like, hey, don't worry about spending, you know, $500 or $400, whatever to replace your computer, which has on its last legs, go ahead and do it. To be fair, that was my cheap legacy that you're having to deal with. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was more trying to making them realize that they don't have to be as tight as they were before that if you know, buying something for 20 bucks meant it was going to save, you know, three hours of their time, then they should buy the thing that cost 20 bucks. I think one of the biggest things that we did was in September, we had a two-day strategy meeting, which they had never done before, something I was really used to doing. And so how did that go? It went really, really well, because they are so full of ideas. And they were either used to just, if they were certain types of ideas, they just executed on them. But other times, they would just get direction from you and not really know the background is what they said of how that came about, how that direction or strategy came about. A lot of them were just kind of told, okay, do this. And so what was the format? Did you bring someone in? How did that work? I did. And the reason I brought somebody in, I could have just done it myself, but I wanted to participate and not just be a facilitator. And I wanted to participate in a way where everybody felt like, okay, everybody's ideas have equal footing as opposed to, well, this is what I'm saying we should do. And now let's talk about why we should do it together. So I did actually ask someone to come in, hire somebody to come in and facilitate the meeting for us. And so we basically took two long afternoons. We started at lunch and then through the end of the day and had strategy sessions about these are the goals I have when it comes to growth rates. So let's talk about how we're going to achieve this. And we also had other kinds of goals too that were softer, not necessarily financial goals. And we built the strategy together. And we're executing, I have to say, on not every single thing we said that we would execute on, but on most of them. And so it feels pretty good. What are their expectations of you and your role now in that company? What I've found is that they get surprised more often when I say, hey, I know you guys did that, and it's cool that you did that, but I wish you had talked to me about that. <laughs> I think they get surprised more when I do that, because it's not necessarily something that you would have wanted to be involved in. But half the time, I just want to know, so I know. Like we were talking about a distribution arrangement with someone, and there had been another company they had been talking to about a distribution arrangement, but I had not known about that because in their mind, it was a company they had already dealt with and they were just adding some more products to the arrangement, but they hadn't thought that that was something I would care about when I'm like, well, look, if I'm having a conversation with somebody here about distributing and you're having a conversation over there about distributing, that's not good. We need to coordinate those things. Do you think that's just a function? Because I'm getting the feeling that you're not generally in the San Diego office here in Los Angeles. Is that true? And is that just a function of not hearing every single conversation? That is absolutely what it is. Yeah. I mean, I am there six days a month, probably. So they definitely have a whole lot of time where there's a lot of conversations going on and I'm not there. And so I just need to make sure it's me not telling them, this is what you need to tell me about. This is the conversation I need to be involved in. And this is what I don't need to be involved in. And what are some of the communication tools that you guys have found to be effective, you working remotely? 
We just recently started to use a new project management tool. I mean, we've been using it only for a few months now, and so we'll see how effective that is. But it seems like it's going to go well. Besides the phone, we use Google Hangouts and then just regular conference calls. What is your role in the company now, Tino? What is it that you do on a weekly basis that the team looks to you for? Well, I think that overall strategy is definitely the biggest thing. I've become more involved in the marketing than I expected because there is no overall marketing person. So I think that's why I kind of de facto become that. And also because when I came in, that was the first area where I was just like, where I thought we really need to spend more money there. You said you guys had been hiding behind the internet, but essentially just looked at the internet for all your marketing needs and gone to a couple of trade shows. And it seemed like for especially the bar products, that that was something that the main buyers of that product aren't really buying it by looking on the internet. They may get an idea from looking on the internet of what they're looking for, but they have a tendency to stick with their old favorite suppliers that make these big, very unattractive portable bars that are NSF certified. And so then they don't have to worry about it. They can just order it and it looks horrible, but hey, they use it. And so we thought, okay, well, how are we going to get into these markets if these are the buyers that are not necessarily looking on the internet for something? And so, you know, we started going to more trade shows. We spent money getting professional photography done, putting the bars in their best aspect and say, here, it looks like a pub. Nobody would ever know this thing is ever portable or modular or anything. And so in terms of the investment, I think it's one of the things that's worth mentioning is in this business, we invested in it, but probably not as aggressively as you did. And it's not necessarily because we didn't believe in the potential, but it's just because a lot of ways I just didn't have the confidence that you seem to show there. So tell me a little bit about that. I mean, you, you spent a ton of money buying the company and then you kind of doubled down on your investment and in going to these shows and more traditional marketing and whatnot. To me, that seems risky, but to you, that just seems like the normal thing to do. Yeah, it did. When I bought the company, I also got a line of credit just in case something went wrong, which I haven't had to use yet. But I kind of got this line of credit also saying, okay, so I know that if I get below zero in my bank account, I can still handle it. So I didn't feel like, okay, I'm not going to be able to make payroll if something happens because I have this little cushion, which like I said, I haven't had to go to yet. But You know, I've seen so many cycles of businesses that I just, I know that it's going to be an up and down and up and down cycle. But when it came to this specifically to, you know, the bars and the valet podiums, it just seemed like it was on this growth trajectory that if we weren't able to satisfy it, that something else would in a way. Do you know what I mean? Like you felt like the market was much bigger. Yeah, we've had interesting things happen where people that are just are using our bars just as trade show displays, essentially, which is not something that we thought anybody was going to do. But we had like one vaping company buy it and then suddenly a whole bunch more did. And so now we're going to, you know, market them as trade show furniture because people come up and if they need to sample something, taste something, whatever, it's perfect. So that happened. And then we had people in other industries start to use the valet podiums for things other than valet services, too. So we're digging more into those industries as well. There's definitely those growth opportunities. You know, nothing out there is signaling to me that there's going to be this big problem. You know, I think it's fair to say that we weren't investing in certain things and then you came in and you started investing them and you're seeing great returns. What are some of the other things in the company that you feel like were under-optimized and that maybe you could or couldn't see before you bought the company? 
you know, we had discussions about warehouse space because it felt like we were going to need to move to a bigger warehouse soon. So I started to work with the warehouse manager just on the configuration of the rack space. We were able to add a lot more rack space and increase the rack space by 25%. Without increasing any of the square footage, we just, you know, added racking and it really paid off well to add the racking. And warehouse space is the third most expensive thing that we have. I mean, there's the inventory is the largest and there's payroll. And then after that, it's warehouse space. We went and looked at different warehouse space and we realized in order to increase the warehouse capacity by 50%, we were going to pay 100% more in rent. So it was just crazy because the warehouses, they have different height ceilings. They have, you know, different configurations. They're not just rectangles all the time. Some of them have a lot of office space and we don't need the office space. And it was just looking really horrible to have to do that, to have to spend that much money and not get twice as much space. So we just started looking around and playing with the different rack configurations. I think we added a container and that's it. So we have an additional container sitting outside the warehouse, which is a heck of a lot cheaper. Part of my management style with the team was always kind of empowerment and especially like use this as an example, like, hey, warehouse manager, like you're empowered to make the right decisions for this company. But I didn't always necessarily give everybody all the information that they might need, I think. How do you keep that person empowered, but yet you come in and you make the decision that we're going to stay in this warehouse and reconfigure in this way, in a way that they still feel good about being kind of the head honcho in that situation? I think in this particular situation, it was just conversations. First of all, you were very cheap. And so he understands me not wanting to spend that much more money. But then when we went around on the tour, and then I was showing him, I'm like multiplying out the lease rates and saying, do you see how much money this is? He felt the same way. He was just like, yeah, that is way too much money to spend for more space. So I think just in letting him see the full, here is what this really means. We are spending this much now and this warehouse would be spending this much. And we're not going to be putting through twice as much product. Tina, what's your two to five year plan? Do you have visions of acquiring other companies, continuing on this growth trajectory? Like, what do you see the opportunities for this company as? We're definitely going to continue on this trajectory. We're definitely keeping the development cycle up. I think we're going to be adding to our design staff, at least with some contractors for a little bit, because there's so many little things that have to be done that's taken up our designer's time. We're also, you know, I've looked at other businesses. Should we acquire other businesses that are in a similar space, have the same customers, things like that. I don't really see myself going out there and saying, hey, I'm going to buy a company that makes bicycles or something like that. You know, it's it's something completely outside the ordinary. But I have talked to some people and said, look, you know, if something comes up that is in the same space, that's very much complementary to what we're doing, then it's a possibility. I don't know if that is a likely possibility, though, Ian. It's more likely that we're just going to continue to go ourselves, but we're definitely not shying away from that idea if it happens. You took out some debt to buy this business. You took out some risk. Now that you're in it, do you feel like it was a good investment? Oh, yeah, definitely. My life is so much better. It was funny. I was talking to a friend of mine and he was saying he visited a friend, but his friend was so caught up in his corporate job that he had become boring. I said to my friend, is that what you used to say about me? And he goes, well, yeah. (laughs) I really did lose kind of myself a lot in the last few years of my job where people are just telling me, oh, you're so much more pleasant to deal with now. I mean, I would go on vacation and barely enjoy my vacation. I would go visit my family and my mind would not be with my family because it was so consumed with my job at Universal. So now it's like I'm much more, I hate to use this term, but I was much more present 
I am much more present with my family, with my friends and with everybody around me. And I just don't have a headache every other day. And I don't have a stomachache every other day. It's like, it's much better. Even though I have all this stuff that is much more at risk, which is so weird to think that, okay, well, let's see, my house is on the line, my retirement's on the line, but yet I feel so much better and less stressed than I did (laughs) when I worked for someone else. Isn't it weird? Yeah, that's a crazy idea that you had to invest so much and yet your life is much more simple, it seems like. Yeah, it's, it's really strange. It's like, hey, I can go to a doctor's appointment whenever I want. <laughs> right. Whenever I need to go, I can just go. <laughs> and it's fun to pass that on to your coworkers and team members too, right? I think that was one of the things that I tried to press hard on people and I still do that work for us. It's like, hey, take the time to go get a haircut. I remember what it was like to have a corporate job and feel guilty about coming in two hours late because I have a wedding the next day and I need to get my haircut. <laughs> Like, afford yourself that. (laughs) Yeah, go ahead and do that. Yeah, it's nice that everybody understands that it's okay for them to take care of themselves. Ian here, jumping in real quick. Because we've reached the part of the interview where I turned the table and invited Tino to ask me anything she wanted to know about the sales process from my perspective, which she did. And just a word of explanation, when we sold the business to Tino, there were some loans, which she is repaying. And so we start to talk a little bit about the loan repayment process. And here she is. I want to know, because I send you quarterly reports, because you talked about in your podcast house, there was an outstanding loan amount. And so that's part of our agreement is that I send you these reports. And so what did you think when you saw our second quarter? Were you like, oh, my God, why did I sell? Or <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so yeah, this is the honesty corner now. My first reaction when I saw that was, this is awesome. I'm so happy for it. And then my second reaction was, ooh, it looks like we're going to get paid back that money. <laughs> 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 that made me feel good, A, that my first reaction was that you guys are doing well, but then B, that you know we're going to get paid back the money. So do I wish that I didn't sell? So a couple of things that I learned, I guess, through this process, I think I'm happy that we sold. But one of the things that I realized is that obviously the business is continuing to do well. And I would, of course, attribute a lot of that to you. But a lot of that gets attributed to the staff that's running the business. And so I guess in a lot of ways, I knew in my heart and we discussed that the business I thought would do well without me. But until you see it kind of happening, you don't necessarily 100% believe it, if that makes sense. Now that I see that it's doing well and actually doing much better, I think, than I could take it, and which is part of the reason why we sold it, you know, there is part of me that thinks like, well, if I just would have put another layer of management in place, like I could have held on to this asset and enjoyed the spoils of kind of it returning for me. Mm -hmm. I was just mentally run down from this business. Like I didn't want to think about these problems anymore. And so I'm still very happy with my decision. You know, your comment earlier about entrepreneurs being well-suited for different kind of stages of the business, I think is very interesting. I'm very much excited to, you know, kind of start something and build it to a point. And then, you know, I got bored. And then you see these challenges as very exciting and new. The opportunity that exists for people to kind of come in at different stages. Yeah, I mean, it is good to know what your strengths are. But it took me trying something and failing to realize, yeah, I'm not very good at starting something, but I think I can grow something. It is important to figure those things out and do it. And yeah, when you've started a business and you're bored by it, you might as well, it is time to leave then because it doesn't make sense to just stick around and do something that doesn't excite you anymore. So 
Dan wasn't on this episode with me and Tino, but he wanted to be part of the show. And I think he's got some great insights because he was there with me during this process. So here he is. (laughs) Thanks, man. I was rapt attention listening to this. Did you learn anything? Yeah. I mean, I don't know Tino that well. I can understand why the business is growing. You know, she's coming in with a really great attitude, a really strategic mindset and a lot of experience. With us, I don't know. We were there for a long time. We were a little tired. But I wanted to ask you some questions. I wanted to ask what you learned. (laughs) Was there anything surreal about talking to Tino for you? Like, was it weird to hear about the team that you had built or the company that you had built? I think it's a little surreal to watch it continue to grow and be successful, although I kind of knew that's what was going to happen. Obviously, not as much as if someone else was there necessarily, but with Tino, it's really taken off. So yeah, I don't think you guys made that like really clear, but I mean, I'm looking at these reports coming in and she's doing a really wonderful job. It's amazing. Yeah. So I had a feeling that it was going to continue to grow and be successful, but probably not at this level or this fast. So definitely impressed by that. In terms of Tino, I think she's a wonderful person. I think it's worth noting too that in these situations, and I kind of had a feeling about this, but when we're in the sales process, especially when we were working with Deals Dimitri, who we mentioned in another episode, who was basically like a shark who tried to buy our business for a very low number, I kind of got the feeling that Even though the deal was going to be inked on X day, we're going to end up having to work with this person for quite a long time because there's going to be loan repayments, because there's going to be a transition, because you might actually like each other. And I think that's become the case with Tino, especially for me, as I really like her. I really like talking to her. In my mind, Dan, it is somewhat important that you get along and you like the person that buys your business, especially if you are required to work together in the future. Right. So, you know, one question I had was, are we lucky to have found her? But another thought I had was, is it important to have found somebody like that? Lucky? Yeah, I'd say so. Because just from meeting all the personalities that came into our business trying to buy it or at least look at it, Tina was definitely the one that I clicked with. And I don't think someone like her comes along very often, just someone that's in business or in life, that someone that's very smart and someone that is just like in tune, you know, a real down to earth person that you can talk with, that you can have meaningful negotiations with. I thought it was funny when she was describing all this scandalous information she found out about businesses she was trying to buy because... You know, the thing about entrepreneurship is it can very often attract people like Tino and yourself, like articulate, smart people, but it can also attract people that live on the fringe of society or (laughs) they can't hold a job or whatever. And so say there's, you know, 100 people who can't hold a job, they all start a business. And 10 years later, the two that were successful, you're trying to buy them, you know? I was just on Craigslist the other day in the business section, as you do sometimes, because that's where the most scams are, it seems like. There's like a picture of this California home with like four exotic cars in the driveway. It's like looking to get in on the ground floor and all this. (laughs) The idea next time, I think, Dan, with this whole process is that could be a way to put your first step forward is when you're talking with these people is to just say something along the lines of, look, I know you've looked at a lot of businesses, or I'm sure in this process, you will look at a lot of businesses. 75% of them will be full of shit. (laughs) And that's kind of the story that I got from Tino. And that's why I think that we were ultimately successful with her is because we weren't full of shit. And most of the stuff that people get fed through these brokers or through wherever they're looking for businesses are not good businesses to buy. I guess the final thing that jumped out at me, so many things were fascinating, was her sense of personal calm and ability to focus on the moment and take some time away from the business. 
that really jumped out to me. I'm not sure why. I, I guess I thought because she took so many risks and because it was such a immense challenge, you know, being on the other side of the fence for so long, I thought, well, hey, that's the great thing about having a conventional job is that you can close the door Friday at 5 p.m. and then you get your life back. But as you're an entrepreneur, you always have the business. Yeah, I found that really interesting. Something that I didn't expect to learn from her, which was basically that she's a more complete person, it seems like, after buying this business and being an entrepreneur than she was as an executive at a large company. But in a lot of ways, I think that makes sense to me. It seems like she was always looking for something like this. And it's not something that the corporate world was able to afford her. It seems like her stress levels have gone down after buying this business, although she mentioned that there's a lot more risk involved with loans. And there's a lot of risk in owning a small business, I think. But it doesn't seem like there's as much risk as being an executive in a job that you don't necessarily like. Yeah, it's like you're always going to have some level of pressure and stress. And I think it's choosing where you want it to be. And I think that that's one of the things that hearing her reminded me is like, because a lot of times I do get stressed out about our business, you know, even if it's going well. It's like, do I want to own that stress? Do I want it to be my responsibility? Or do I want to be ultimately controlled by somebody else? That's exactly what it is, which is basically you own the stress as a small business owner, whereas you are stressed as an executive somewhere else. So Ian, how about we post this one at tropicalmba.com slash sold follow-up. And I hope this isn't the first one. It would be really cool to continue to track with Tino, see how it's going. Of course, I know you're concerned about continuing to get paid. (laughs) And by the way, I just thought it was great that the whole staff is just traumatized by years of dealing with you. It's fabulous. (laughs) (laughs) What did you think about that when she mentioned to the staff that, hey, you know, I'm not Ian, you're allowed to fix your freaking computer now. Yeah, I feel like in the early days, it was a lot worse. And I feel like I had lightened up, but I guess not <laughs> not to the point where people had felt like I had lightened up on that. But that was good for me to hear what I can change in the future. But I just want to thank Tino again for going through this process with us and coming on the show. I think it's really cool that we can continue to have a conversation with her and continue to learn about this business as it grows. It's so fascinating that like this little business was the vehicle for all the freedoms that we were looking for. You know, at the beginning, we were so wide-eyed and dreamy and like we wanted just to be our own bosses and control our financial future and go to the dentist on Tuesday afternoon, you know? Now to see her transitioning to that and using the same vehicle is kind of, it's rewarding, I guess. It's just cool to see. It is cool to see. And it also makes sense why Tino is like the next evolution for this business in terms of what I understand about my and your personality. It makes sense to me that someone would come in and take an established business to the next level. Are you familiar with the Peter Principle? I am. It suggests that you can only basically evolve you know, to the level of your own ability. And maybe we were just petered out. <laughs> petered out. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Tito. Thank you, Boss Man, for such a great interview. I was personally wrapped. We will have the show notes and the conversation on this episode at tropicalmba.com slash sold follow up. And we'll follow up next Thursday morning. We're going to be back with another show. See you then. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning. 
8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.